We open the Holy Scriptures to Esther chapter 3. We will read the whole chapter, and the whole chapter will also be the text. This is the Word of God in Esther chapter 3. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him, and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass, when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. In the first month, that is, the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, They cast poor, that is, the lot, before Haman from day to day and from month to month to the twelfth month, that is, the month Adar. And Haman said unto King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people, neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's profit to suffer them. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it unto Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the Jew's enemy. And the king said unto Haman, The silver is given to thee, the people also. Do with them as it seemeth good to thee. Then were the king's scribes called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and there was written according to all that Haman had commanded unto the king's lieutenants and to the governors that were over every province, and to the rulers of every people of every province, according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, in the name of King Ahasuerus was it written, and sealed with the king's ring. And the letters were sent by posts into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, even upon the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. 
The copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all people that they should be ready against that day. The posts went out, being hastened by the king's commandment, and the decree was given in Shushan, the palace. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city Shushan was perplexed. Thus far we read in the Holy Scriptures. As Esther 3 verse 7 informs us, it's now the twelfth year of Ahasuerus' reign. That would make it roughly nine years since the feasts recorded in chapter 1. And roughly five years since Esther was made queen. And the assassination plot by Bigthan and Tiresh thwarted by Mordecai. Some time has passed now between Esther chapter 2 and the events that we read in Esther chapter 3. What a tumultuous time it had been in the Persian Empire from the third year of Ahasuerus' reign now to the present time. Imagine what it would have been like having Ahasuerus as your king, throwing a half-year-long banquet, then another banquet, then deposing his queen in a fit of wrath over her defiance of his wicked command. And then an empire-wide edict is published codifying the submission of wives to their husbands into the unalterable laws of the Persians. And then another empire-wide edict goes forth, gathering the daughters of Persia to Shushan the palace so that the king might find his favorite and pick for himself a new queen. What a tumultuous, distressing, perplexing time it must have been to live in the Persian empire under such a king as Ahasuerus. But now, at last, things seem like they're finally settling down. But really... Things are just getting started. Chapters 1 and 2 have set the stage, informed us of the circumstances that surround the central story and history of the book of Esther, which now we are brought into in Esther chapter 3, and we are rushed right to the crisis of the book. The rise of a man named Haman. A cruel, wicked man who has a grudge, who has a simmering hatred against God's people. And as he is brought to power, he is given an opportunity to act on that hatred. And as he is snubbed by one of the king's servants, Mordecai, there becomes an occasion for him to act. And the great crisis comes forward when Haman, the prime minister of Persia, decides he will destroy the Jews and will hatch a plot of horrific murder and unimaginable destruction. But in all of this, we will see the one who is not named, yet who is unseen and behind all these things, the one true God, Jehovah, at work. Preserving his people. 
So let's now move from the setting and the circumstances to the central plot of Esther and see the great crisis that puts the rest of the book in motion. Haman plans destruction. That is our theme. We're first going to look at Haman and his promotion. Secondly, Haman's plot. And finally, the unseen powers that we've confined in this history. Chapter 3 opens with the sudden and unexplained elevation of a certain official named Haman the Agagite. In verse 1, tells us that Ahasuerus was pleased to promote and advance this particular civil servant, this particular man in his court. And the opening verses of the text describe the nature of Haman's promotion. It was no ordinary promotion. Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. Those other princes that are here mentioned are the princes that we met back in Esther 1 verse 14. The seven princes of Persia who saw the king's face and who sat first in the kingdom. And so what the text communicates to us is that Ahasuerus, for some unstated reason, elevates Haman to the position of second in command in the Persian Empire. His prime minister, if you will. His right-hand man. His second in command. Similar to how Pharaoh elevated Joseph. Remember the history at the end of Genesis, how after Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams by the insight that God gave him, Pharaoh raised Joseph over the entire Egyptian kingdom so that Joseph answered to no one but Pharaoh himself. So it is with Haman. Haman is given a great promotion, and this promotion gave him a special privilege. He was before even the seven princes of Persia who saw the king's face. And that described a special privilege that those men had to directly access the king. Something that no one else in the empire had. Haman had direct access to the king. Now this promotion is ominous because, as verse 1 goes on to explain, Haman was the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Haman and Hamadatha are both Persian names. The name Haman literally means magnificent. And no doubt, Haman thought himself to be magnificent. We will see that later. But what is ominous is his ancestry. He is an Agagite. Agag was the royal house name of the Amalekite kings. Haman was an Amalekite. And we know from the Old Testament scriptures that the Amalekites were descendants of reprobate Esau, and they were one of Israel's fiercest and most long-standing enemies. One example from biblical history which shows us that is found in Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 19, which records how the Amalekites dealt with Israel when Israel was journeying through the wilderness. Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 19. Here God tells 
his people, remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way when ye were come forth out of Egypt. How he met thee by the way and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. Amalek came out in force and attacked Israel. And they attacked Israel in a very cruel and craven way. They came from behind and attacked the weak and the vulnerable of the people. And so God goes on to pronounce a curse and judgment upon Amalek in verse 19. Verse 19. Therefore it shall be when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek under heaven. Thou shalt not forget it. In Numbers 24 verse 7 as part of Balaam the rogue prophet's prophecy concerning Israel Balaam said this, that Israel's king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. And so this is the history that we need to understand is behind Haman and his view of the Israelites. Haman represents a long-standing enemy of God's people. He is of the house of Agag, a house that hates Bitterly hates the house of Jacob. We'll come back to that a little later. Now, one more thing on Haman's promotion. It's interesting, isn't it, in the text that no reason is given. Just as we noticed last week how no reason is given for the fact that Mordecai's deed was recorded yet not rewarded by the king. Mordecai, who rendered a great service to King Ahasuerus, his deed is written down in the king's book, but nothing happens. And here again, Ahasuerus seems to act on a whim. He likes this guy Haman, he likes his character, he likes his resourcefulness. As we'll see, Haman is a man very much like Ahasuerus himself. And so, without explanation, Ahasuerus simply raises Haman to the second highest position in the empire. No deed of Haman is mentioned, and this leaves the impression that Ahasuerus is still ruling at his own whim. This promotion of Haman now becomes the occasion for the emergence of the central crisis in the book of Esther. And this comes forth in a conflict that takes place between Haman and Mordecai. The text reports that as Ahasuerus had promoted Haman, he also, along with that promotion, issued a decree to his court and his servants that Haman was to be shown honor. Verse 2 says, all the king's servants that were in the king's gate were to bow and show reverence to Haman, for so the king had commanded. And that's what the, the servants did. Bow to him. Showing submission to Haman on account of his position and reverence, honor, respect, deference. And there was a special order given to the servants at the king's gate. And this seems to imply that Haman often went to the king's gate. And that would make sense. Remember, the king's gate was the center of his administration. It was the center of the palace supplies. It's where the administrative officials had their offices. And Haman, if he's second in command, is undoubtedly involved in the king's finances. It makes sense that he would often go to the king's gate. And so this command was especially given to the servants stationed there. 
And we know who sits daily at the king's gate, don't we? Mordecai, the Jew. And so here comes the conflict. Verse 2 goes on to say, But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. When Haman appears at the king's gate, and all of the other officials and civil servants there bow to the ground and pay their respects and honor to Haman, Mordecai does not. Evidently, Haman didn't notice at first. Verse 4 reveals that he only learns of Mordecai's defiance after Mordecai's colleagues at the gate come and tell Haman about what has happened. Perhaps Haman is too captivated by all of the praise and the honor being given him that he doesn't notice Mordecai hasn't joined the others bowing. Or perhaps Mordecai kept himself in a corner, perhaps in the shadows, so that he wouldn't stick out too much as he refuses to bow and pay reverence to Haman. But whatever the case may be, Haman didn't at first notice. But Mordecai's colleagues noticed. And they were offended by it. And the text tells us they confronted Mordecai about it. Why do you transgress the king's commandment? Don't you realize Mordecai, king Ahasuerus, issued this command, bow to Haman, We don't get to decide whether we show respects to him or not. Whether you like him or not, you bow. Why haven't you been doing it? The rest of us have. Mordecai gives a short reply. Verse 5. I'm a Jew. He told them, I'm a Jew. That's all he said. Because I'm a Jew, I won't bow to Haman. Verse 4 reveals that this happened several times. It happened over the course of several days. Haman came daily, and daily Mordecai refused to bow. And daily his colleagues at the gate confronted him about it. Mordecai, what are you doing? Until finally they decide to go to Haman, tell him what's happening, to see if Mordecai's matters would stand. That is, if Mordecai had a legitimate reason to defy the king's command. Were his reasons valid? Now, before we get to Haman's response, we want to analyze Mordecai's actions here. Mordecai states plainly why he will not bow to Haman. I'm a Jew. Was that reason valid? Was Mordecai's motivation godly? Was he right to refuse to bow to Haman? A very common interpretation of the text is that Mordecai is in the right here. And the idea is that Mordecai is refusing to give worship to a man. Mordecai here is upholding the first and second commandment. Mordecai is making a Daniel-like stand. And while on the surface that may seem plausible, that interpretation really doesn't stand up to close scrutiny. In the first place, The text gives no indication that Ahasuerus commanded the servants at the gate to worship Haman or to pay religious homage to Haman as if he were a god. Rather, Ahasuerus simply orders his servants to bow and show respect and honor to Haman on account of his position. And bowing was the typical posture in that day by which such respect was shown. Secondly, God, while he certainly forbids the giving of religious worship to any creature, 
does not forbid the showing of respect and honor to civil authorities. In fact, God commands such and commands it for their office's sake because the powers that be are ordained by him. And so when we read the Bible, we can find many examples of saints bowing before other men while not giving them religious worship. For example, in Genesis 23 verse 7, Abraham, as he is purchasing the field of Machpelah from Ephron the Hittite, he bows himself before the sons of Heth as an expression of respect. And the Bible does not condemn that. In 2 Samuel 9, verse 6, and 1 Kings 1, verse 31, we read of Mephibosheth and Bathsheba bowing and showing reverence to King David, using the very same language as we find here in Esther 3, verse 2. And so when you put those things together, it doesn't seem as though Mordecai is making a religious stand here. It's not that he's been required to worship Haman. He has simply been required to show Haman respect, befitting Haman's office in the empire. So what explains then? What explains Mordecai's actions? That he is so firm, I will not bow to Haman because I am a Jew. And here we go back to The fact that Haman is an Agagite. And here we go back to that genealogy of Mordecai that we saw in Esther 2. And we see why it is important. Remember Mordecai's descent. He is a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. Descended from King Saul. Now call to mind the history recorded in 1 Samuel 15. Where God gave the order to King Saul to carry out judgment against the Amalekites. And God ordered the total destruction of the Amalekites. But Saul disobeyed. You remember what Saul did. He took back the best of the livestock as plunder. And he saved King Agag alive. Not only is there a national enmity between the peoples of Mordecai and Haman. But there is a kind of Family enmity. Mordecai stands as a representative of the family of Saul, the great foe of King Agag, who was Haman's ancestor. Haman is an Agagite. Mordecai knows it. This man represents the arch enemy of my people. I will not bow to the likes of him That's why Mordecai is so firm here. Not because he's trying to be faithful to the first and second commandments. He sees who Haman is. Haman is his enemy. And he loathes the idea of showing honor and respect to a man like Haman. So now understanding Mordecai's motives, we are in a position to ask and answer the question, was Mordecai justified in the course of action that he took? Was he right to defy the king's command and refuse to bow to Haman or show respect to him in this way? And the conclusion that we come to is that Mordecai's actions were not right. They violated the fifth commandment which calls us to honor God-ordained authority, irrespective of who that civil authority may be. 
It would have been a different matter if King Ahasuerus said, worship Haman. It would have been another matter if King Ahasuerus demanded of Mordecai that he do something contrary to the word of God. As wicked as a man as wicked a man as Ahasuerus was, he doesn't do that here. He simply calls his servants to show respect to his right hand man. The word of God says, you show respect to the authorities God puts over you. That's an unpopular teaching of God's word, but it is a teaching nonetheless. For example, in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 15, there the word of God comes to us and says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. That was Mordecai's calling at that moment as much as he disliked it to submit himself to the ordinance of the king and show respect to Haman in his office for the Lord's sake. Whether he be, or whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well, for so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of of foolish men. Now here historical context is important for Peter's words. Do you know who the supreme king was when Peter wrote 1 Peter 2, 13-15? The godless, persecuting emperor Nero. And yet Peter, by the inspiration of the Spirit, says, submit to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Submit to wicked Nero even. Submit to wicked Ahasuerus. Submit and show respect even to Haman, the Agagite. The mere fact that Haman was an Agagite was not sufficient reason to disobey the king's commandment. And that's an important reminder for us. Sometimes, and in our day, oftentimes, and really that's true throughout all history, God puts wicked men in positions of authority. And that doesn't excuse us. From our calling to show respect for the Lord's sake and to submit to their ordinances when they do not require us to contradict the word of God. A couple of applications here. First, there's a warning against pride. Pride which can be so subtle. Pride which can put on the clothes of righteousness. And that's what we see here in Mordecai. Pride is esteeming oneself too highly so that you lift yourself up and consider it beneath you to serve others or to show honor to others because I'm better. As we'll soon see, Haman is a man swollen with pride, but he's not the only proud man in Esther 3. Mordecai has his pride too. It was beneath his pride to bow to Haman. He's my enemy. I will not show him respect. I will not humble myself before him. He couldn't abide the idea of bowing to an Agagite. You see, Mordecai's aversion to bowing had more to do with himself than it did God, and that's pride. When we're proud... We lift ourselves up. And really, behind pride is self-worship. I will not do anything that I believe is beneath me. Beneath me. We see Mordecai's pride in verse 4 when he refuses to listen to his colleagues at the gate. 
His colleagues at the gate didn't bear any malice towards him. And that's evident from the fact that day after day, they talked to him about this. Mordecai, the king commanded, why are you disobeying the king's command? But he would not hearken unto them. Yes, it's good to have a strong conviction and stand fast by your convictions. Let's never compromise that. But wise men, listen. Listen to the counsel of others. Proud men refuse to hear counsel. And that leads to all kinds of trouble. And we're going to see that's the case of Mordecai. Though God is sovereign over all of these things, Mordecai's pride becomes the occasion for the furious flare-up of Haman's wrath and leads to the unfolding of the events in the rest of chapter 3. And that cautions us about the danger of pride and how quickly pride causes big fires. So let's apply that personally. Do we lift ourselves up over others, our family, in our church, in the Christian community, such that we think, or even conduct ourselves in such a way, I don't have to listen to them. I don't have to respect him. They're beneath me. I... Need to serve her? Her? That's pride talking. We must be on guard because that's in our nature. That's in our nature. Pride is rooted in our nature. Pride can make us hypercritical of each other. Pride can make us loathe to serve one another. Pride can make us grumble and complain about one another. Because we've lifted ourselves up and we esteem our brothers and sisters too small, too little, too insignificant to give of ourselves for their good. How easily that pride can take root and how much damage that pride can cause. So on a personal level, on a church level, on a denominational level, let us, by the grace of God, be a humble people who listen to others, who heed counsel, who do not lift ourselves over others, who do not think it beneath us to wash the saint's feet. Even that saint. Even that saint who did that to me at some time, some point ago. Humility, not pride. Well, now we come to Haman's plot. And it's interesting, isn't it? Here's another irony of the book of Esther. So soon after Bigthan and Teresh's plot against the king is uncovered and foiled by Mordecai, the very man that Ahasuerus elevates to his right hand position of power, that very man begins plotting against the very man that saved Ahasuerus' life and his entire people. Haman's plot. Well, Haman begins plotting after he learns about Mordecai's defiance. When Haman learned of Mordecai's disrespect, he was enraged and began plotting his revenge. It appears that after the servants told Haman about Mordecai's actions, that Haman went to the king's gate to see for himself. And so verse 5 says, And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And that's a strong expression, full of wrath. 
He was furious, full to the brim. If you picture Haman as a vessel, he was overflowing with fury. His anger consumed him. And here's pride again. Haman is a man swollen with pride. And this is how pride responds when pride is snubbed. When someone gets in the proud man's way. Wrath. Fury that cannot be contained and that will burst out in terrible evil. Haman has enormous pride. He relished his position. He esteemed himself worthy of the honor of all men. And so Mordecai's personal insult to him was an affront to his pride and sense of self-importance. And not only that, it had happened several times publicly before the other servants at the king's gate. And that fried Haman. Fried him, fed his rage, and it brought all the history back. Because the servants from the king's gate had told Haman, Mordecai says the reason he did this is he's a Jew. He will not bow to you because he's a Jew. And Haman the Agagite, his mind races as he thinks about all of the history as it has been handed down to him by his unbelieving forefathers about Israel, terrible Israel, Israel that we hate, and their God that we hate. And now Haman sees an opportunity to put an end to the house of Jacob, the house of Agag, to get its revenge. Now before we we go on and and look at the plot of revenge, let's, let's notice anger again. We made that application last week, but it comes up here again. And it's a striking fact in the first chapters of Esther how often this comes up. There's so much anger in, Persians, in, in Persia's court. So much anger. And that's ironic because you remember, you remember what Memukan and the other advisors' fear was? If word got out what Vashti did? Word gets out that Vashti defied the queen. There's going to be too much contempt and wrath. There's going to be a domestic uprising on the part of the ladies of Persia. Look at how much wrath is pouring out of the court of Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus' wrath when his queen defies him. The wrath of Bigthan and Tiresh at King Ahasuerus. And now the wrath of Haman. It's a place of wrath and anger. That's our world. That's the nature of man. Ahasuerus, or rather Haman, is cut from the same cloth as Ahasuerus is. He's a man full of wrath when his pride is snubbed. In fact, the text emphasizes that in a Hebrew wordplay. This Hebrew wordplay shows us that Haman is characterized by wrath. His name is Haman. And the word wrath in verse 5, full of wrath, is the Hebrew word chema. And you can hear the similarity in sound. Haman is full of chema. That's who he is. A man of fury. So we can reflect on that. The danger of pride. And how quickly pride leads to fury. Wrath. How do we handle it when someone snubs us? How do we handle it when someone insults us or we perceive an insult? How do we handle it 
like Haman or like Christ. Let our Lord be our example. Not just our example, but let us ask and pray to our Lord for the grace that we need to be Christ-like in our dealings with others and not Haman-like. Not flare up in anger when we are snubbed or when someone gets in our way or when someone thwarts our plans. But rather be a humble man, long-suffering like our Lord, bearing one another's faults, even letting love cover a multitude of sins and absorbing offense as much as we can. And when the matter is too great, it must be dealt with, and we deal with it in the biblical way of confessing our faults to one another and forgiving one another, esteeming others better than self with lowliness of mind as our Lord did. Well, in his wrath, Haman wants vengeance. And so in his position of power, he now has the means to accomplish vengeance On an empire-wide scale. From Haman's wicked heart. Now arises a plot. A plot and a plan. For the utter destruction of his enemies. Esther 3 verse 6 now. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now, Haman is going to lay hands on Mordecai. And here you you catch the same language as was used to describe Bigthan and Teresh's plot. Esther is making a connection there and pointing out that irony that the man who saved Ahasuerus from a plot is now being plotted against by the king's own man. Haman's going to get a, Haman is going to get Mordecai. But the text says he scorns the thought of only laying hands on Mordecai. That's not enough. That won't soothe his offended ego. His vengeance must be much bigger than that. The vengeance he envisions is empire-wide. It's the total destruction of Mordecai's own people. And undoubtedly, he had a perverse sense of justice in this. Okay, Mordecai, you won't bow to me and show respect to me because you say you're a Jew. There's something in being a Jew that means you won't bow to me. So it must be that not only you, but your entire people would do the same thing to me. And so you all deserve punishment. But behind it all is his hatred. His hatred for the house of Jacob. And now is the time to settle the historical scores. And so Haman begins forming a plan to exterminate God's people throughout the entire empire. And you can follow Ahasuerus' own example. Ahasuerus has become pretty good now at publishing empire-wide edicts. And Haman will do the same. But to find the right day to hatch his plan, Haman resorts to Persian superstition. That's verse 7 of Esther 3, which describes the process of casting lots. The text says that in the first month, Nisan, of the twelfth year of Ahasuerus' reign, Haman cast the lots. And the Persian name for those lots is Pur. And this Pur 
These lots were little clay dice that were cast on the ground. And it was believed that by the influence of the stars, these lots would point to the most favorable day or the lucky day to undertake some endeavor of great importance. And so Haman, being a man of his pagan religion, resorts to superstition. He casts lots. The idea of verse 7 is not that he cast lots every single day all the way up to the 12th month, but the idea is that he cast lots and those lots pointed, they pointed to the 12th month, the month Adar, as the month to do his dirty work. And so Haman selects the 12th month to be the month of extermination for the Jews. That's almost a year away. Right now, it's the first month, the year, or the month Nisan. And so there's going to be a, a, a year's time between the publication of Haman's plot and the actual execution of it. But that would be necessary because it's going to be empire-wide and much preparation must be made for the destruction of Haman's enemies. And so having determined the day of his massacre, Haman approaches King Ahasuerus to gain approval for his plan of destruction. And he presents the plan to the king in the most devious and even devilish way. In fact, you read how Haman approaches Ahasuerus and you see similarities between that and how the devil approached Eve. There's a mixture of half-truths and outright lies. Haman knows Ahasuerus. Haman knows what levers to pull to get his way with Ahasuerus. And so, in verse 8 and following, Haman brings his plan to the king. And Haman says, there's a certain people. Oh, Ahasuerus, there's a certain people, and they're spread all throughout your kingdom. And this people, they're scattered, they're dispersed. But they're not really Persians. They're separate. They're different. They have laws that are diverse from everybody else's. And diverse there means different, strange. This people doesn't tolerate the gods of other peoples. Even though we Persians are very tolerant, we respect all of the gods of the peoples that we have subjugated in our empire. There's a different people. That have their own laws. And then Haman lies and says they don't keep the king's laws. You see the message he's crafting for Ahasuerus. There's a defiant and dangerous people. That's a threat to Persian society. A threat to Persian peace. A threat to Persian values. And a threat to your throne, O king Ahasuerus. Sound familiar? Sound like some of the rhetoric... In our day. And so Haman then smoothly presents his suggested solution to this problem, people. He approaches the king in the persona of a concerned advisor, but it's all fake. He's pursuing his own ends. And he says to Ahasuerus, if it please the king, if it please the king, let a decree be written that they be 
destroyed. Because it is not for the king's prophet to let them live. Their existence weakens Persia and weakens your power. And to sweeten the deal, Haman makes clear, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to get your hands dirty. I'll take care of it. And then Haman pulls another lever that he knows will get him somewhere with King Ahasuerus. He bribes him. Verse 9, where he offers to give Ahasuerus 10,000 talents of silver. And that's an extraordinarily large sum. In fact, it's estimated that that is over half of the total revenue of the entire Persian Empire in one year. Where Haman is going to get the silver, who knows. Maybe he plans to get it from the plunder that will be taken from the Jews. Maybe it will come from his own personal wealth. Or maybe he's just saying stuff. But he bribes Ahasuerus with money, knowing the king's greed. He promises to deliver all that silver into the king's treasury. Well, how does Ahasuerus respond? Does he respond as a responsible king and ask, well, who is this people? You haven't told me much about them. You just said there's a certain people. Tell me more and explain to me how they are such a threat to Persian peace and Persian society and the stability of my throne. No. Ahasuerus does nothing like that. In fact, his utter irresponsibility and callous indifference are as breathtaking as Haman's own cruelty. The text says, he takes off his signet ring, the royal ring that was used to stamp a seal on all of the king's decrees. He takes off his ring and he hands it to Haman indicating his full approval of Haman's plan of destruction and indicates that he's giving to Haman full authority to act and to carry out his plan. And with little care or concern, he says, the silver is given thee, the people also do with them as it seemeth good to thee, verse 11. And the idea of all of that is, go ahead and all that you need will be given to you. Get the job done. With the wave of an indifferent hand, Ahasuerus says, go ahead, exterminate a whole people. I don't care. I can't be bothered with things like this. Just take care of it. Take what you need. Make sure I get my silver. Callous, cold-hearted, evil, done without the least twinge of conscience. That gives us some insight into the world. That's the world we live in. That's the dangerous world we live in. Let us not think that the world is the friend of the church. We see similarity in the rhetoric of Haman. Similarity to the rhetoric of our world. Isn't that us? Christians? Different? Stick out? Dispersed throughout all the nations of the world and yet following the laws of our God. This is very much how the world sees us. It should not surprise us when the world rises up in hatred and persecution. Jesus Christ himself said, if the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. Because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore the world Hateth you. So the edict goes out. Edict goes out. Verses 12 through 15, a lengthy passage. 
describes how the edict goes out. The machinery of the Persian Empire gets working again. And the scribes get writing. Another empire-wide edict shall be issued with all speed. This one, the most horrific of them all. Ordering the extermination of all Jews from Ethiopia to India. And the edict is written on the 13th day of the first month. And the wording of the decree is extreme. You see Haman's hand in it. Destroy, kill, cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, and take the spoil of them for a prey. And this decree is written in Ahasuerus' name, stamped with his royal seal, and sent out to the lieutenants, to the governors of all of the provinces, and to the leaders of the different peoples throughout the empire, instructing them to organize the killing on the stated day and to make ready for that day. And it seems as though God's people are doomed. Who can stand before the iron might of the empire of Persia? Who can stop this? An unalterable law of the Medes and Persians has been published. Sentencing every Jew to death. In a year's time. King, as verse 15 says, the king and Haman, callous and indifferent, sit down have a drink, and eat their food, while the whole city of Shushan is perplexed, frightened, unsettled, for an unsettling decree it was. Is there any hope? How could there be any hope? Here we come to the powers at work behind the scenes, the unseen powers. And first, we must note That there is the unseen power of the prince of darkness. Of the prince of the power of the air at work. There is more here in the text than simply the hatred of one man, Haman, for his historic enemy, the house of Jacob, and particularly the house of Saul. Behind the vengeful plotting of Haman is Satan working out his own plot. And behind Haman's hatred is the hatred described in Genesis 3.15. Where God said, I will put enmity between thee, Satan, and the woman. And between thy seed and her seed. Here is the enmity of the seed of the serpent towards the seed of the woman. Enmity that burns all history long. Haman represents the seed of the serpent. Satan's willing agent. And behind him, the devil is roaring. We know what that plot of Satan is throughout history. In the Old Testament, the focus of that plot was to stop the coming of Christ. To stop the coming of the seed of the woman. His plot. Satan's plot is to kill, destroy, and cause to perish all the seed of the woman so that the seed cannot come. His eye is on the promised Christ. His eye is upon the line of David back in Jerusalem, upon Zerubbabel, the ancestor of Christ. 
And we see Satan here at work in faraway Persia, working to manipulate things to destroy the line of Christ. He's been doing that throughout all of Old Testament history, starting with Cain's murder of Abel. Perhaps you think of the plot of Athaliah, Ahab's daughter. When she took Judah's throne, what did she do? She sought to kill and destroy all of the seed royal of the line of David. And only Joash was spared. As godly Jehoiada and his wife Jehoshaphat took him away and hid him in the temple. That was Satan at work. Trying to accomplish his plot. To stop the coming Christ. And now he has even greater power than Athaliah at his disposal. He has his agent as prime minister of the most powerful empire in the world. Who can stand against such might? And there's there's a satanic touch to Haman's decree. The text tells us that it was written... On the 13th day of the first month, Nisan. That's a day before the Passover is celebrated. Passover begins on the 14th day of Nisan. It is as if the serpent says, let your God deliver you now. As this edict of extermination is written and sent out from the court The king of Persia. It looks as though there's no hope. But behind Haman. And behind Satan. Indeed behind everything. Is a far greater unseen power. Thus truly sovereign power. The power of Jehovah the unseen king. And we've been seeing in Esther 1 and 2 and now in chapter 3 also how God is at work thwarting the plot of the devil. Thwarting every power that brings itself to bear against his precious people. God had elevated Esther and made her queen long before Ahasuerus elevated Haman. God caused Mordecai to uncover that plot of Bigthan and Teresh. And God caused it to be recorded, yet unrewarded, so that, as we'll see in a couple chapters, it might be discovered and begin the downfall of Satan's agent, Haman. God even uses Mordecai's sinful command to Esther to hide her Jewish identity. God uses it here. Haman doesn't know that there's a Jew so close to King Ahasuerus, his own queen. God is in control. And God was even in control of the casting of poor, the lot. As Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. God chose that day. Right before Passover. Right before Passover, the edict would be issued. And God would deliver his people from that edict. Showing that the God who was their help in ages past is still their help and shall be their help for ages to come. And the same is true for us. The God who delivered in the past is still our deliverer and our preserver yet today. But now one last application for us to notice. 
the extreme edict of Haman for the killing, the destroying, and the causing to perish of all the Jews. If there's any king who would be justified in issuing such an edict against a people, it would be the unseen king, Jehovah God, would it not? And he would not be guilty of any murder or any cruelty because that is what every sinner deserves. And the wonder is that Jehovah, rather than consigning us to destruction, rather than setting the the seal of his approval upon an edict that would destroy us, he gives his only begotten son to the death of the cross and suffers his only begotten son, you might say, to be killed and destroyed by wicked men, crucified and slain for the salvation of his people. He gives Christ to the death of the cross to save us from the law's just decree of destruction. What a king is ours. What a savior is ours. And so this history, even as it brings before our eyes the great crisis of the book of Esther, with the eyes of faith, don't lose sight of the king who is preserving his people And as you see him behind the scenes, you are shown what to look for in your life. In the history going on today, the same unseen king is at work, keeping, preserving, saving his church. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank thee for this history which impresses upon us thy care for thy people, so different from the cruelty and the callous evil of this world. We thank thee that thou hast given thy own son, Jesus Christ, for us. That he went to the cross to suffer and die, so that the just sentence of thy law would not come upon us, though we deserve it. Grant that this may humble us, And stir us up to more fervent love and devotion to thee. That we may trust that thou the God who hast been our help in ages past. Shall continue to be today and tomorrow forevermore. Jesus name we pray. Amen.